Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Yo. It's been a while since we did a one-on-one. Last time we were giving you a little progress update on uh, his project, Green Brothers, my project, Bed. So you're fully done with shooting, right? Yeah, we, uh, we shot everything and then we cut it all together and the producers all watched it and we figured out the parts that we wanted to underline more of and the parts that we wanted to sort of have another crack at. So we had uh, additional photography and reshoots, which ended uh, last month. And now all that footage is put together. Nice. So everything that's pretty much going to be in it is in it now. And it's just a matter of placement at this point. Right. Just little tiny tweaks here and there. Yeah. Which is a cool place to be. You know, it's, you look at it now and it's kind of, it's, it's a grown person now and you have to just sort of, you know, the Pygmalion approach now is you're, you're doing the the fingernails. You're not building the face anymore. Right, right, So when, when are you looking at as far as a, a release or shooting for? Uh, we're hoping to have it ready to submit to stuff by November, December, which I think is pretty realistic. I mean, we're uh, we're looking now at sound and music and color, and that's what's left. Mm-hmm. And what's your what's your vibe as far as color correction? Because you know the the typical thing these days is color correction is it's it's like an Instagram filter at this point. Yeah, where people just layer something on it. What's your what's your vibe as far as that? Well, I actually didn't go see Jurassic World because of the color correction in the trailers. Oh yeah, because it was that really high gloss, um, almost glowing look, and I just I literally I physically can't look at that anymore. It, it it's, it's starting to hurt my eyes. It makes everything look like CGI almost, like yeah. all the characters even. Which is funny because people try to figure out why the CGI in the original Jurassic Park looks so much better than so many new movies, and I think a big part of it is. The color in Jurassic Park, it just looks like a sort of sanded over version of reality. You know, you yeah. get rid of the the too bright stuff and the too dark stuff and you make sure people's faces pop and that's all you really need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what I'm looking for. I don't want it to, I don't want you to, especially because it's such a presentation of, an, of a place and a sort of style of living that I don't want to deviate too far from that right you want to showcase the bronx as it looks or feels yeah. in some way when you layer something over too much then it can just be anywhere it's like it yeah. might as well be any borough it might as well be any major city yeah so what i've been looking at kind of as as guides for the color stuff is um a lot of uh, a lot of 70s stuff when they were just starting to work with handheld and um and i i just feel like the 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 colors in those were really interesting. Like when you saw metal, it always felt like metal in a way that it doesn't in like eighties movies and nineties movies mm. and like concrete felt more like concrete than it does in anything else. Yeah. You're, uh, you're reminding me of like the opening of uh, dog day afternoon. Yes. Always that's felt a big, very lived in, very real. Yeah. That's kind of the feel we want. So I've been sort of st- taking apart those and trying to figure out like what elements of like, well, how much contrast are they using and like what, you know, what's the the tint on all this stuff and what can we use and what just doesn't work with digital? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to do the other thing that, you know, you'll get like the Grindhouse movies will do. Like as much as I liked it, Hobo with a Shotgun kind of did this where they um, tried to recreate a film stock that doesn't exist anymore. Right. So I'm, I'm walking this sort of delicate balance where I'm trying to figure out, well, how do you do the the feel of that with the technology and the the footage that we're using now? The thing that always bugs me about that, the like the overlaid film grain, is that you'll see the um, the difficulties that digital cameras have 
but then you'll see film grain over it. So like you'll see maybe blow, things that are blown out in a very um, digital way. Yeah. And then you'll see grain over it. And it's like, well, no, that a film camera wouldn't capture light in that way. Yeah. And even people who don't know that, I think it, it yeah. you know, there's something subliminal about it. It's very intuitive. I feel like there's a lot of, it's almost like an uncanny valley thing where like, yeah, even if you can't articulate it, you just know that something's off. Yeah, and it's stupid to do it anyway because it's just swimming upstream. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to fight what looks best with the cameras we use. Right. I want to sort of find it mm. and, and elaborate on it as opposed to trying to pound it into something entirely different. Sure. So what's uh, what's the word with bed? Well, I kind of realized that because it's essentially a a filmed play, it's you know two characters talking for a whole movie in one location. I had to sort of give my my two actors way more time with the material like it, it really for them to do it right and for them to be completely off book and completely in it they essentially need to devote like a solid month just to the material and with that realization i realized all right well i kind of if i if i want them i have to pay them well and i need to essentially pay them so that i'm the only thing on their mind for a month you know it's Right. Actors are so underpaid when it comes to like yeah. very low budget projects. It's like you budget for everything else except for the actors. But in this sense, my actors are my production value. Like the reason why people want to see this film is because they're like, wow, these these actors are really going for it. Like it's it's going to be a good looking movie, but nobody's going to be going to see it because like, oh, wow, the stunning visuals, you know, like they, they want to see these two actors. Yeah. Deliver. I think acting is always more important than oh, yeah. cinematography. And I think in film school, they trick you to think it's the other way around because they teach you how to handle can- cameras, but they don't really teach directors how to work with actors. Yeah, this is this is an actor's movie. And uh, so, yeah, that's the arrangement now. Is I'm essentially, I'm paying them way more than they've ever been paid on a independent film. And that's not to say that I'm paying them a lot. <laughs> that It just underscores how little non-union actors and union actors are paid on films typically and you know they're they're working actors they're always off going to some other state to work on some small thing for like a week or two and coming back and uh this way i know that they're only working on this for like 30 days and then at the end of the month we'll just do it so we haven't entered that that month phase yet but we're gearing up to do that and i'm looking for locations like there's a very specific layout for the room that it has to be and i've been asking around with like friends and friends of friends to to find the exact bedroom layout and something that works visually and i'm noticing like what's the layout either a queen or like a slightly big full in the center of a room that's uh long so it's like cutting off the room lengthwise with windows on the left hand side of the bed and a door on the right hand side of the bed and there just has to be like these very specific things as far as like how deep it is in regards to that. I think I've found a space that will work, but like I'm also I'm realizing certain things like if the if the walls are colored, then people are just going to be looking at a color for an entire film. So it's better if they're white and it's better if there's just things on the walls. But that if you they're sort of see. white, then they're just going to be looking at white the entire time, right? I mean, I don't right, but the uh, the white the color of the white is going to change as the light changes okay, over the course yeah. of the day, so it's going to look a little bit different in the beginning of the day and later on. 
but if it's a specific color, then it's just like shades of a color and it becomes so much about the color. So like if somebody has blue walls, then suddenly it's a very, it's it's like, all right, well, blue is important important in this film, yeah, apparently. Yeah. People lock onto that. So I'm realizing- well, It's like that's a very calming yeah, color. It, it, it has such an influence on the mood. So I have to almost have like this blank slate of white or off or slightly off white where you know i can i can sort of make the room look lived in by like strewing little knickknacks and clothes places and piles of stuff and that can be like the color like i'm realizing like a a friend of mine has a closet and i think her space is going to work for it hers is like the front runner right now and like when her closet is open suddenly it's a burst of color because it's you see all these different colors of like shirts and whatnot yeah so like i can get my color in there in these in these certain ways that's much better than just having colored walls or like a very furnished room like it needs right. to be it needs to have that whiteness i'm realizing and these are things that you don't you don't realize until you start figuring it out like these aren't things i thought of when i was writing it at all because I was just focused on the characters and the setting. But all that set dressing is really, really crucial. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff is um, that stuff is killer. We had a lot of trouble with Green Brothers with locations because there's so many different ones. And we had a couple fall through. And um, we ended up... A lot, of, uh, a, lot, a lot of the locations are sort of adapted from what, what they're like in the script. And, and some actually... I think for better, like there are some things that we could do in the space that we couldn't do in real life. And in others, you have to sort of, we had to, you know, build a few fake walls and this and that. Mm. Have you thought about that at all? Getting like a production designer? And I mean, you could even, I think, make a fake room inside a larger room if you wanted to. I could. I, uh, my instinct is towards finding just a space that's already pre-existing just because the vibe of that, like even if the, uh, the people watching it never know that I, built something like i will know and i i feel like they'll react differently as they're even performing that if they're if they're in like a real space that feels lived in and has like the smell of people that have lived there there are all these like intangible like five senses things that sure but isn't the worry with that that it's not their space well if it's i mean i would be way more if i were acting way more uncomfortable you you know like flopping around a room if it was mm-hmm. somebody's real room than if it was a set. I think it depends on the dressing. Like I I want to get like a lot of stuff that belongs to them actually in yeah. the, in the finished room. Yeah, that's handy. Yeah. Like I want I want most of her clothes to be in that closet for that day and I want like some of their posters from their actual apartment cuz the the two leads if you haven't heard the the the, uh, the first episode of me and John going back and forth on our films Definitely go back and check that out. But just a refresher, the two leads are in an actual uh, relationship together. So it's uh, two actors that really do have that that boyfriend-girlfriend, like years and years and years relationship together. And uh, yeah, I want to take as much sort of uh, dressing from them that I can to uh, really just make any space feel like they can draw from living there or whatever. Do they know the person whose uh, apartment it's going to be? Yeah, they do actually. If it if it ends up being the person that it's going to be, then yeah. Yeah, that's probably a lot easier than. Mm-hmm. I feel like then you you feel like you have permission to just fucking do whatever. And she just moved into it recently, so there's a lot of freedom as far as I can bring in furniture. I yeah. can really make it look like theirs for for 24 hours. Huh. 
So when are you uh, when are you gonna pull the trigger on it? What's do you have shooting days locked or anything? No, no, nothing's locked yet. It's uh, it's just about picking the month where they're gonna just yeah. do that and only that, and just make it their entire life for that and. They won't have to worry about money for that month, and they'll they'll just be able to devote their waking hours to just working on this. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I can provide them that much time to work on it. Yeah, and it's better for you too. Yeah, I mean, it's so much easier. I think, like, I, I think it's there's such a temptation to try to see how much you can do for as little as possible, mm-hmm. which is you know it has some merits, but like every now and again you got to just be like, well. I'm going to pay for this. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I'm going to get more out of paying than I could sort of weasel. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would rather them get the money for rehearsing rather than like shooting on the, the super duper 4k camera or whatever that just came out. Like the top, I would rather yeah. skimp on that and just shoot 1080p. And it's like, it's like, woe is me. Like, it's like, come on, I would be begging yeah. to shoot on that five years ago or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like like ultimately you can have the nicest looking pictures in the world, but if if you're doing a movie that's a, a painting with people in it, nobody's gonna look at a painting for an hour and a half. It can't no. you can't do that. You're better off having uh you're better off underpowering your camera and overpowering your actors. That's that's my plan. Yeah, it's a good plan. Yeah. So we've been talking recently about uh responsibility in film. That's that's something we've sort of yeah. come back to a lot. And the reason why we come back to it is because we've had specific dealings with that. With my own film rehearsals that came out a couple of years ago, I've dealt with like, because it's such a voyeuristic thing, it's basically just fly on the wall footage of women living their lives. And it sort of, it's a flowing theme and it just all sorts of, it's like a collage and there's a lot of freedom with a collage. And when you're making a collage, you heighten certain things and uh, that becomes what it's about. And there was a fine line with the voyeurism and like what's exploitative and what's not. And with Green Brothers, because you're dealing with uh, this real place, the Bronx, and you're dealing with uh, violence in the film and you're dealing with race in the film, yeah. there's certain, like as much as you, you always as an artist want as much freedom as possible, just do whatever you want and fuck anybody else. You feel the responsibility once you're in the position. I yeah, think. which I think becomes healthy because it makes you sort of examine your material more. Green Brothers was tricky because it was it's it's been in gestation for a long time. I think the idea, I mean, the idea was very different from from what came about, but the idea came to me sort of late 2011, uh, early 2012, and um, it's a it's a movie very much about um, criminals and and young people in crime and and race factors in heavily into it and, and sort of economic positions factor into it. And along the way, Trayvon Martin got killed. And along the way, George Zimmerman got off with it. And that the the draft that came after that had a very different perspective on sort of urban crime mm. than the draft before it. And I don't even know if it was so much conscious, although at times it was, especially as it started to become more and more of a, a thing where I realized, well, this is, wasn't just going to be a screenplay. This was definitely going to be the one that, you know, we were going to run with. Um, you really start to worry about how things are going to be taken and what certain elements of your movie, you know, you don't want anybody to be able to justify their shitty behavior with, with what you present. So you think of like American history X, mm-hmm. 
which was ostensibly sort of a uh, a big anti-racism film and like Crash, right. which was also the same way, but both well-intentioned films. Yeah, but, but along the way, <laughs> I mean, what were you saying about American History X? The sort of jiffification. Yeah, I there's a distinct the the intention behind the the famous curb stomping scene was to show something absolutely horrible and like this is horrible and the legacy of that film is really in a gif which i've or jiff or i'm just gonna say jiff because that's how i like saying it but the gif of that curb stomp i've seen tons and tons of times on the internet just as like a meme and that's the legacy of it which it's something that's been turned into something that's cool and a punchline and the problem with that is that it underscores the fact that it shouldn't have been shot that way to begin with and if it had been shot differently it wouldn't have that legacy it wouldn't be this this joke and you get sort of on a on a broad level the impetus for shooting it that way you really want to show that he's kind of like a a big powerful monster in that scene but Mm -hmm. then you just sort of look at somebody who's big and powerful and you know like incredibly good looking in that moment and and you barely have any um shots of the victim really yeah the the trouble is there's so much more immediate visual weight in shooting in focusing on the the perpetrator than the victims in something like that i think it's a lot easier to come up with something that you have an immediate gut reaction to when you're shooting the perpetrators than the victims. Um, so it becomes sort of the path of least resistance. And um, just because of the times we're in, for me at least, I had to sort of pull back with some of the scenes that were written and and look at them and be like, well, this has punch to it, but, you know, do I want just punch? And like along the way, a script that was a script for a low-budget action movie became a script for sort of a low-budget thriller because it just sort of... You know, you, you, some of these things you don't want to just be purely visceral. I don't, I don't want to say I had this sort of um, change of heart because I never did because the, the intention and the, and the aim was never to sort of glamorize the violence. But you do sort of inevitably have to play with this sort of unforgiven sense of something that's beautiful and horrible at the same time. And you, you sort of figure out just kind of like where where you are in the land of, of shooting violence. Right. There's the commando end of it where it's kids playing a game. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the, um, uh, what's the, what's the movie irreversible where the, with yeah. the fire extinguisher. Oh man. And then that I think is a great piece of filmmaking, but it also, then I think you, you open the door to something that's not quite, you have this sort of hyper reality that I didn't quite want either. Yeah, it does. Uh, it feels dreamlike. Yeah. That's a very dreamlike sequence, that first opening sequence with the, the fire extinguisher scene. And uh, I enjoy that because I think it it captures it, ca- it captures revenge in like a bad dream somebody had. When you when you have if you have like a dream about like just some weird twisted dream where you got revenge about something or maybe there was a robber that came into your house and you're just wailing. Like I've had dreams where like you're trying to inflict damage and you just are inflicting and inflicting and inflicting and it doesn't mean any like it's yeah it, it's almost like they're made out of rubber or whatever and i i got that that similar vibe from that opening scene and i think it worked for that because it, it does get way more realistic later on yeah 
So I think they 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 went to the edge and then they brought it back, which I really appreciated with uh, Irreversible. But you're right. These things are such a like a little bit, maybe lingering a little bit more. And I would have felt that way or lingering less. And I wouldn't felt that way. These are just these yeah. really exact sciences with uh, violence in particular. You know, it's a case study in it. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Because I think the first two seasons, the sound editing is so terrible and everything becomes so goofy because you have these moments where it's, you know, theoretically supposed to be a really kind of dramatic moment when somebody dies, but you hear the same very loud pull of the sword and the same that you hear in everything. And those sounds, I think that sort of pull of metal and that, and you hear it with guns too, you know, the cocking of a gun, those sounds, you hear them so many times in so many different movies that they're almost comforting. So Game it's very of, safe. Yeah, Game of Thrones near the end, it started to change its sound effects up. The violence, I think, in the last two or three seasons is a lot less comfortable and a lot less comforting. And in that way, you know, as a book reader, closer to the feel of the violence in the book, because the violence in the book, you know, never has that like squishy quality, that uh, cartoonish quality. It's always yeah. like, oh, fuck. Like whether you care about the character or not, you're kind of like, oh, my God. You know, and I think I think capturing that was a. I'm I'm glad they cared more about that as it went on. It seems it yeah. seems like a very conscious choice. What you're talking about killing somebody. I think if you want to, if you want the audience to feel a little sick and sad and emotional about it, you're almost better off doing it al dente. You know, where you pull it out of the the pot of water a little early. Mm. You know, if you let it sit there and it's there's all the blood in the world is coming out and the sound is super loud, then it's Maybe 20 years ago, that would have been quite horrible, but now it's almost comforting. It allows people to like retreat into their defense mechanism. Of, yeah. This is a silly movie. Yeah. But if you've ever seen any shot or stabbed or even just hit very hard, it's, 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 it's less than you expect. And that becomes yeah. the drama of it. That's sort of less. Like, I think the, the, um, the punching in Fight Club, I think, is brilliant because it just sounds almost like slapping in any other movie. Mm-hmm. And it gives you time to be kind of like grossed out because punching somebody is kind of gross. Yeah. And um, in a lot of movies, they just you go for that sort of base of it. It's just a thud in a lot of movies. Yeah. But that treble is really where the grossness lays that sort of, yeah. you know, goop of a face, like the sound of like someone's ear slapping against their their because yeah, it's skin scalp. against skin, you know. Yeah. People forget that aspect of it, I think. It's yeah. not just like a like when you hit a microphone against your leg, you know, that's what it ends up being in a lot of movies, which is like doom. Yeah. And you've never really had a lot of violence in any of your stuff. No. Um, nothing. But it's something I always worry about with everything. You know, you don't wanna you wanna stay on right on that razor's edge of kind of like what you feel when you when you feel someone hurt or when you hurt yourself, you know, that sort of the focus almost changes and sometimes it blurs and sometimes it tightens and, you know, there's just this different vibe. Let me ask you something. How do you feel about like CGI blood bursts and all that? Because I, I've always felt like it, it turns it into like a video game because that's what you see in video games. You see computer yeah. generated bursts. And when you see that in film, it just keys you in, oh, this is like a video game. Even if you're not conscious of it, you yeah. you sort of distance yourself from what's going on because you're seeing video game-y uh, behaviors to blood and whatnot. Yeah, and um, if you want distance, I think it's brilliant. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the um, remake of Zatoshi from 
2000. Yeah, I did see that. And that one, that's one of the first I've seen with CGI blood. And his his intention, he said, was he wanted the blood to come out like flowers blooming. Mm. And it does. And it really is quite beautiful because he wanted this sort of distance and this kind of beauty to everything. You I know, that's, a, that's an action movie that ends with a dance sequence and the, <laughs> the, the action kind of goes the same way. I think that one works too is because he's blind. So yeah. the idea of what it looks like, it, it's more of a representation of what it looks like in his in his mind as he's yeah. picturing, you know, these moves done against these foes, you know? Yeah, I think that's really effective. I think if you want um if you want that sort of down in the dirt feel, then you have to be very careful with CGI blood. Yeah, when it's deliberate and it, it's being used for a purpose like in and that Zatoichi remake it can be very effective but it seems like with a lot of action movies it's just the default now it's just like all right well yeah. that's how we're going to do it because everybody else is doing it which is a lot of practical reasons to do it that way it's not even everybody else is doing it i mean it means you don't have to clean up between takes yep. and it's a lot safer of course y- you can do it very well i think the raid and the raid 2 i was shocked when i learned how much that was cgi blood right because it's just handled with you know weight and with sort of precision in the in the making of it like we were talking about before it has an uncanny valley quality to it where you know you can you know how blood is supposed to behave maybe if you never even saw somebody get shot or somebody get stabbed but everybody's or whatever. cut themselves and you yeah. know sort of the density of blood and and stuff that it's harder to do in a movie than it is in real life i mean sometimes you see it in movies where it just looks like food coloring water like it, yeah. it it's treated that loose that it's like it's preposterous like it's, or, or not it's even, like kool-aid not even that just that i think a lot of action movies um sometimes i think very intentionally especially in the 80s you had this look where it was sort of like people were just bursting at the seams with blood <laughs> yeah you know like any injury like the blood, blood didn't even want to stay in the body yeah, any in injury the first place blood just explodes <laughs> out I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of those action movies in the 80s where when somebody gets hit with bullets they have like a mist of blood coming out of the entry wound. <laughs> yeah. It's as though they've been shot uh, from behind at the exact same moment or something. Yeah. And you want it as a punctuation mark, but, you know, you do it so many times and it loses its impact. And then to punctuate that, the better way is almost to not do it. Yeah. Like to me, one of the most queasy and gunshots in anything is in um, Children of Men when Michael Caine is shot in the finger. Mm. And it's from like, you know, like 500 yards away or whatever. You don't see a drop of blood. And that sort of anticlimax to the whole thing is really what gets you. Well, you're uh, you're somebody who takes the uh, the sound of gunshots very seriously, too. Your, yeah. your favorite one is the, is the shot in, in Shane. Yeah, which um, the director of Shane, George Stevens, was uh, like that whole generation of filmmakers. He was in World War II and he... Uh, was filming the liberation of the concentration camps. Mm. And all his movies after that, including actually The Dyer Van Frank, took violence very seriously. And Shane is the first movie where when somebody's shot, they pull them on wire across the stage. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, it's it's the first movie where guns and gunshots are treated as, as effectively, I think, as a um, separate element. You know, it's something that the participants can't control right so guns and shane the way they got the gunshot sound effects which there's fewer of them than you remember in shane Mm -hmm. 
they fired a little like 12 inch cannon in a metal uh trash can jesus and it sounds you know the sound it peaks you know it oh, roars yeah. through the through the set and, and it's mixed the, a little loud too yeah which i think is great because it really you know it makes the rest of the movie kind of setting you up for a, a specific loudness you get used yeah. to things going up to a certain level and then it just when a gunshot happens just kicks even bigger than you we've expected you have that visceral reaction that i think makes it work of course now you have to go chase in the other direction because now movies all mix their guns so loud and with surround sound it's mm -hmm. so crisp that i think to get a really effective gunshot sound in a movie now you're almost better off underdoing it right you know you you bury it into the mix a little more and you um you let it be sort of an anti-climax mm. but it's tricky because you have all these worries about you know what your responsibility is as a filmmaker of you know making violence and making making things like that how beautiful can you do them you know like how comfortable can you make people in them and then at the same time you don't want to like lean in and see you know all the death and destruction and a sort of pointless goopiness i think uh tarantino's best gunshot stuff might have even been in like jackie brown because i there are moments like the moments where a gun is fired in that film it's a very impulsive decision and yeah. you don't see a lot of it. it's like two people just together or something and then it just a gun comes out and it's just it's this very you know gut-wrenching thing where it's just like we were just talking a second ago and it doesn't have that like kill bill quality it's not yeah. pitched up in that way it just has this like this is a person's decision quality to it. You know, it's not a necessarily an act of violence and it's an act of frustration with the person that you're talking to where it's just like, it's like, it's like they're saying like you motherfucker, but like saying it as hard as they possibly can. I, that's probably my favorite use of gun in uh, his entire filmography. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs has some of that too. I think the end of Reservoir Dogs is really a great, anti-climax mm. you know it builds and builds and builds and builds and then he kind of denies you that last you know like john woo you know the last beauty of the guns yeah which more and more i'm really i think there's a lot of you know merit in making a really beautiful dramatic sequence with your guns and you know like i mean i love action movies as much as anybody but i just don't when i'm picking up the camera i i just sort of lean in a different direction is Reservoir um, Dogs your favorite house? Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. By far. But I almost don't count Inglorious Bastards because mm -hmm. it's so good. Yeah. And it's one that he spends so much time on. So of the the sort of rest of them, Reservoir Dogs, I think, really, really gets it. I feel the way about Reservoir Dogs. I think a lot of people feel about Pulp Fiction where they feel like it rewrote how you do something. Well, people always talk about Pulp Fiction and the coolness of that and you know, that came out and redefined cool and whatnot. But even as a kid, like I remember Reservoir Dogs having such a buzz. And I, th I think people downplay the buzz of yeah. Reservoir Dogs because that came out and that, like my parents saw that and it was all they could talk about, even to me, just a little kid. Yeah. Like that was a seismic event, Reservoir Dogs, that I don't think it gets enough credit because obviously Pulp Fiction, such a huge, huge movie and important yeah, and for independent Yeah, and also, I mean, a film. great movie as well, but... Yeah, but Reservoir Dogs, he came out of the gate with fucking Reservoir Dogs, and that was very impactful. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I really like that one a lot. I think that one sort of... I, I'm a sucker for anything where somebody's like waiting to die. You know, mm. Any, anything where where death feels like like a storm. Well, that is a through line for the film. I think that's that really took it to the next level. I think you don't get to see aftermath of violence enough in yeah. films where like people are just dealing with their wounds and dealing with uh, the pain of what happened. And with violence in a lot of films, you're seeing like even even the, the act of the violence in the initial doing of it, like drawn out so much and then yeah. they're just dead and it's over. It's like you... My favorite thing in Hostel is where like he's like nursing his hand, you know, yeah. for like the rest of the film or something. Like I love that. Yeah, that was a big Green Brothers thing too. I mean, um, one of the characters in it can't feel pain. So an interesting contrast to that became then um everybody else who's sort of, you know, they fight a lot and they're in trouble a lot and they're running around a lot, is sort of constantly in a low level of pain. Which to me also is just sort of a, an aspect of the human experience that you don't see in films a lot is this sort of sense of, you know, like your back hurts. Right. Yeah. You know, like your knee hurts. And that's such a human thing. Like that's that's us every day. That's a, that's everybody's existence is like you've always got something going on with your body. Yeah. And you need to I think you need to see that in film sometimes because otherwise there's like a two-dimensional quality to it. Like when somebody doesn't have anything going on with them, like at all, like yeah. it, even if the film is good, they just need something. It's a, it, much like with, with, with set dressing, it, it's almost like a character dressing where they just need to have that tangible thing of like, you know, that guy feels that certain way and he has like maybe, you know, the, the, the classic cliche example is like Richard III with like a yeah. limp or whatever. Yeah. But you know, physical maladies, they really do take it to the next level because it's its a very relatable thing. It's like with, uh, you know, Deadwood when uh, Swearingen is dealing with uh, a stone in his kidney. You know, yeah. that, that's such a that's such a centerpiece of the entire series for me is him dealing with that stone. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the very good movies, you feel the presence of the human body in them. Mm. And in a lot of perfunctory movies you don't you know like i i always thought um part of the genius of almost every mitchum performance is you know you you feel his like physical state all the time oh yeah you know you feel when you know he's got like a low-level hangover you know especially later especially you know eddie eddie coyle is such a masterpiece of like the indignity of like being hurt when you're older yeah i think home alone kind of rode that line really well because you see the two bad guys physically change over the course of the film <laughs> significantly. We're like, yes, everything that happens to them is cartoonish, but if it happens to them, it's there for the rest of the film. So like yeah. when he puts his hand on the door doorknob and it burns his hand, now his hand is burnt for like the rest of the film and the sequel too. Like I, <laughs> I like that people carry these, uh, the pain, you know, I, I I just like that a lot. And I like that in a lot of other John Hughes, actually, too. Like with uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you see yeah. them physically change over the course of the film and get beaten down and like maybe, you know, mud gets splashed on them, that sort of thing. It's, yeah, which he really mines for comedy because it's such a such a great complication. Yeah. And you can take that and mine it for drama, too, in the same way. You know, like the, the presence of your your body, I think, is... Is, is something that's so important for films. It's part of why um, Jean Vigo, I think, 
you know, his, his stuff really hit me too. Um, because you really get this sense that people are just a fucking wreck yeah. in that movie. And, um, it's funny when you think about movies and you think about like, I dare you to think of somebody who's bruised in a movie, mm. you know, not cut, not bleeding, not this, not that, just they bruise themselves. Yeah. And that really is kind of the, the, the area that at least with Green Brothers and with my last play with very little, I kind of wanted to work into that sort of area of the physical condition. Absolutely. And how it affects a drama. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with a little bit more uh, responsibility and film discussion. See you soon. Hello, Smug Film fans. Did you know that Smug Film now has a voicemail box? Just call the following phone number. 718395 and leave a question or a comment about the show along with your name, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening, and now, back to the show. And now, Chloe Peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater. People love Dragon Ball Z. I don't know if you know how much, but I worked two sold out theater ones in a row. That's 200 people both times, two nights, and all kinds of walks of life. Fat people, skinny people, black people, Asian people, Mexican people, white people, and... They just all have this look in their eye of warmth and happiness. They love it. It's it's their favorite thing. And it seems like a legitimate love. It's not an ironic love. It's not like just a nostalgic thing. It's like they're legitimately laughing at what they see on screen because it's a very self-aware work of art. A lot of those jokes in there, they knew exactly what they were doing. And a lot of the stylistic choices, they know exactly what they're doing. I don't know. I'm starting to think of Dragon Ball Z differently than I did after seeing... Like, sometimes when you see an audience react to a movie on that mass scale, you start to understand what the appeal is. Whereas if you just see uh, little bits of a movie or a series, or whatever in life, just uh, without that aspect there, you don't really get it. And um, I think that, uh, I'm afraid to say this, but I might actually give it a shot. I don't know. I don't know. I'm reluctant right now. But it's tempting. Thanks, Chloe. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. All right, we're going to continue our discussion. We kind of started off talking a little bit about rehearsals and the, uh, the voyeuristic stuff that I had to deal with that. We're going to go into that more. We've, we've covered violence, I would say, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you could talk all day about it, but at a certain point, you got to pull that plug. Yeah, let's move on to uh, ladies' bodies. and uh... Well, not just ladies. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Maybe some men's bodies will sneak in there. We'll sneak in a couple men's bodies. But um, the point is, with rehearsals, if you aren't familiar with the film, 
there's a lot of just ladies living their lives and sometimes they're living their lives in underwear and sometimes they're living their lives completely nude and that's just the that's what it is and uh you know there's voyeuristic porn out there there's like uh upskirts and we're living in the the era of the creepers that just like follow people around and like Walmart and take pictures of girls in yoga pants and all that. And I consciously, you know, wanted to avoid it being something that felt like that because, you know, in all these instances, it's just me and the girl and they're not looking at me or the camera or anything. They're just, I'm there, they're living their lives, they're doing what they're doing. And I didn't want that to be the vibe of it. I didn't want it to be an unsettling thing. I wanted it to be where I'm, I genuinely am capturing some capturing something natural. So this was from the beginning you your sense of responsibility towards this was you didn't want you didn't want to be I guess gross. Yeah. I mean the impulse was just like a lot of aspiring actresses that I knew most of their lives were just them living their lives not doing much acting whatsoever and I wanted to capture that repetition quality because people always talk about with rehearsals you know, you're repeating and you're repeating and you're repeating and you, it's things that you're practicing for some event, you know, you're, whether it be yeah. the play or the, uh, the movie that you're doing and you're doing your lines and you're doing them over and over and over again. But I was noticing that the repetition in their lives was just their lives. So that was, that was the rehearsals of the film. It was just like, how many times are you picking up this cup in this exact same way, you know, making your iced coffee? Yeah. Like, the uh, a bit in, um, that bit in uh, Everything Will Be Okay when he's sitting there throwing his keys on the table and thinking about how realistically that is his life mm. and anything else is the, yeah, the aberration. Fault. Yeah. 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 And it was great little movie. Yeah. I mean, tremendous. And um, yeah, that was that was the impulse. It was like, all right, if I'm going to capture what it is to be an aspiring actress in New York City accurately, it's really just going to be a culmination of those moments and finding larger things through the repetition of that. So how much of that was imposed on by you and how much of that was them? Uh, like in the sense that what they were doing, what well, was, what was pre-planned and dictated and, and what was, you know, like what, if your idea was to just sort of capture their, their lives, which is the same problem I had sort of with Green Brothers in a different way, this sense of almost feeling like an interloper sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, well, it was a constantly a discovery because it would be as bare as like, all right, well, what would you be doing right now if I wasn't here? And I'd be like, all right, well, I'd probably be like uh, washing these dishes. And I was like, all right, so I'll just, I'll capture you washing these dishes or whatever it would be at that period. That's what I wanted. And then like, I was constantly editing it while I was shooting it. So if I had shot maybe three different girls, three different scenes, I would play around with that footage together. Like that was all I had. So I would see like, all right, well, if if I have these three different scenes, which one would go first, which one would go second, which one would go third? And then each one I would sort of like trim so that it made sense or flowed. Like, and that might be just one shot that was just unbroken that was dope or a couple of shots that kind of flowed together that I could make flow together actually. Like the the opening scene in the film, it has a very linear quality to it, but the actual shooting of it was completely random. Like there was no flow to it whatsoever. But as you're watching it, that, right. that's actually the sequence I'm I'm most proud of editing wise in the film because it really does. Is that why you put it first? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've always been the a person where like 
you got to hook them right away. Yeah. And if they're not hooked, then it's not a film for them. I like that kind of thing where like you watch a movie and in the first 15 minutes, you're either on board or you're not. And if you're on board, you know, it's like, all right, well, this is the ride for you kind of thing. And yeah, that first scene took a long time to really edit and call together and make make sense. But I was so proud of it when I finished it. And um, yeah, so as I was shooting the film, maybe I'd have eight scenes, 10 scenes, 20 scenes. And like eventually... I was I would sort of group them into like times of day and like I was starting to see the day in the life emerge. So I was starting to see, you know, all, all obviously all the morning stuff would be together and the afternoon stuff and the night stuff would be together. But then I would find, all right, well, what's the first morning thing and what's the, the second morning thing? And it it never would be as specific as, um, you know, you take a shower first and then you eat breakfast. Sometimes it would be like weird inter like spurs things like even somebody doing like makeup or whatever it's like well that makeup thing could go in the beginning if i wanted to but it works better in the afternoon for some reason that i don't really know yet and then like it would just sort of come together in that way and in regards to the nudity and stuff where they're in their underwear and whatever i realized that the flow that made most sense for the day was that in the opening scene you have a sort of busty like pulp kind of iconography thing where she's got breasts and she's wearing a bra and she's in her bed and the lighting is kind of pinkish and like that was a very distinct look that you know without giving anything away where I end up in the film I'm going way more nude but I'm going way less uh, leering with it. Yeah, so, less glamour. Yeah, it's it's you're seeing more of a person, but you you're stripped of like all it's stripped of all the eroticism. Right, you're seeing the person and not. Yeah, the, it's a cathartic. Yeah, the, uh, I wanted it to be a cathartic arc, so I wanted to go from like a disconnect where you're it's almost objectified, and then we're ending up in a place where you're seeing way more of a person's body, but it has this cathartic, non-erotic quality to it yeah the eyes wide shut approach where you start with that perfect shot of nicole kidman as Mm. like the male fantasy and then as it goes there's more and more nudity and it's just becomes more either human or abstract i always like that approach that's great movie it's an underrated oh yeah absolutely so are you going for that intimacy in bed well that's interesting because i'm going for the intimacy of that and the vibe of rehearsals but i'm also going for the vibe of my first film, Shredder, where I, I definitely see Shredder as like a male psychology film and I see rehearsals as a female psychology film. And bed for me is those two psychologies in a relationship, in a bed together for a day and what happens from that. So it's like the guy in bed kind of represents whatever I learned from Shredder and whatever was swirling around with that and the girl represents whatever I learned from rehearsals. And so it's almost like a culmination. It's almost like a trilogy like a bed trilogy that that has formed from those three films. That's interesting. That's the stuff I never want to think about until I'm done with something. Yeah, I didn't know I was making a trilogy until I was maybe halfway through bed. I started realizing like, all right, well, this guy is Shredder and this girl is rehearsals. And this is like them hashing out their their uh, respective uh, philosophies together. They're like just forced into this uh, neutral space. So how are you going to deal with this sort of I mean, it's it's about people in a bed for a whole day, which sounds very um, intimate. And it sounds a lot like there's a lot of opportunities to fall into all those sort of 
same traps that you had to avoid last time around. Yeah, it's a uh, there's sex in it, but it's aftermath kind of thing. Like it's uh there are, there isn't a sex scene. You see like the beginnings of something and then you see like the ends of something. It's that kind of thing. It's mostly um I guess there are there are definite sections to the film. If it was all just one argument the whole film, I would have no interest to even write it in the first place. There there are waves where like they're a certain way to each other and one person has an upper hand and the other person has an upper hand and like just vibes as far as like them enjoying it and them not enjoying being there. And it's a, uh, I've always seen it like uh, as almost like one of those survival horror films where like mm. they're stuck in a location and there's hope at a certain point and then there's not hope. And then maybe there's this, it's like that where um, the parameters are constantly changing, even though the location isn't changing. Like I, there's a section in the film that feels like to me, it feels like a day at the beach. Like they're just, we're watching the waves on a blanket like that's the vibe of 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 that section and then there's another section where it feels like they're sitting in like a couples therapy and then that that's like the that's the therapy section and then there's there's another you know there's there's these definite sections where like even though they're still in that exact same bed they're treating the space a little bit differently even just the way that they're sitting in the bed and uh clearly also the way that they're talking to each other just it changes that that room you know it's yeah it's a blank slate that becomes maybe 10 different things over the course of the film so was there any things in green brothers that changed or that you were i guess just conscious of in regards to sexuality or how you represented women in the film or anything Mm. like that yeah it was tricky um because green brothers is such a male story being told. I mean, it's about brothers and then another group of sort of surrogate brothers and then another group of brothers. But mm-hmm. um, the women that are there are, are sort of um, key, but not centralized. Right. That makes sense. They're, they're sort of, um, they're not exactly onlookers, but they're, you know, they're not uh, in the heat of all this stupid shit that's going on around them. Right. So I wanted to always sort of beware of not making another one of those movies where, you know, all the women are just sort of waiting for the men to live their lives and then sort of living in the reflection of it. Right. You know, I didn't want to do another one of those things where, you know, there's the big scene where the the man has to go off and save the day and the woman is, you know, not happy he's going, but understands the mission. I, I worried a lot about sort of matters of agency like that. And then um, they're actually coming to think of it. There was one bit where in the script, one of the women was in the shower. I ended up moving it because um, it just off the page felt a little much. Mm-hmm. And that was really my only brush with it. So now the only... Um, well, that's such a trope. The uh, Women are always showering in films, it yeah. seems. <laughs> They're always... Now the, the only showering going on actually is a man. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, so I flipped it around. Yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to avoid those kind of... Especially with... Uh, actiony, crimey sort of thing with the male yeah. genre approach. I really wanted to avoid that sort of sense of um, of people just waiting to see how others are living their lives, which I always think is so fucking phony. It's interesting, the shower thing, because I create a certain expectation in rehearsals where like once a shower scene is starting to creep up in the film, you think, all right, well, we're going to see some nudity here. And I deliberately shot the, uh, the shower scene uh, very tight, like against her back. And she's like wearing like a uh, shower cap too. And there's like, 
it's a very claustrophobic shot and there's nothing erotic about it whatsoever. It's just, it's a, it's a completely different vibe than what you're prepare, prepared for. And, you know, when, when I was looking at the footage, I was like, I've never seen a shower scene of a woman shot like this ever in, in any film that I've ever seen. It's always, you know, a bit pulled back or if it's close up, it's a, you know, it's following the uh, the curves and it has that quality to it. But like yeah. the way that I shot it, like you're looking at her back and you might be, might as well be looking at like a man's top of like a man's back with like a man's shoulders or whatever. Like there's something about it that's just, it's it's a human taking a shower right. rather than a lady taking a shower, you know? Right. So why was the shower in there? It was in there because, you know, for one, I can't resist a good fake out like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also because it's, you know, it, it changes the way you look at that specific character in the film. Because, you know, right. the film, it's it's essentially they're all playing one character. It's like the through line, it, it's as though they're just one person. But, uh, yeah, it just changes the way that you see that person from how you see them directly afterwards and from how you saw them right before. And it's just, it, it's a great way to remind people of human qualities, I guess. I think I that was always the most fun part of it was peppering in these these very human aspects throughout the film where people weren't ready for them because if you can right. catch somebody off guard with something very human I think that's that can be very effective. Yeah, I'm constantly on the hunt for that those sort of moments where um you feel like this sort of walls broke down. Yeah. Well, in what I saw of of Green Brothers there's there's a great human moment with a painting that I really appreciate where it's it's one of the characters talking about how he got the painting and what the painting means to him. And it's kind of an abstract painting. So it's it's one of those things where any number of the characters, if that was their painting, they would have had a different reason of how they got it and a different reason of yeah, and what it meant kinda, to them. Yeah, and kind of out there. His is a little out there. And it, it it's a great way to illustrate his psyche and just his vibe and a little glimpse of his backstory even. It's, it's a great... It's a great moment, I think. That was one of those written on the back of a napkin scenes because oh, we yeah. had a little extra time in the yeah in the location that we weren't expecting. So um, over lunch, I just scribbled that off. Yeah, I'm, I I liked how that scene worked. You can almost tell, like visually, it, it it's pretty um, simple because it was you know like a like a a thirty minute like all right, let's see if we can make something out of this thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean the the actors in that scene are so good, and they're. Um, so many other takes of it where there's where the lines are pretty much the same, but the the feeling is like slightly different. Mm-hmm. Some are more aggressive, some are a little more like reverent. I wanted to keep away from the sort of reverent approach to it. I feel like that always ends up self-important. But it, yeah, it's sort of a fascinating puzzle with stuff like that. You can um those little human beats can change things in such critical ways. Um one of the things with Green Brothers that I want to do is um in some of the parts where it's like particularly violent, I usually have, without giving my approach away too much, there's usually humor right before there's something terrible happening. Mm. Because I feel like it's a good way to sort of jackknife you. Yeah. It's a good way to sort of, you know, like get you sort of settled in your seat and then yank you by the hair in another direction. Mm. But it's a, it's one of those things where, you know, like the kind of humor is so tenuous and we'd do a whole bunch of different takes with like slightly different approaches. And, you know, you'd play with what feels right in this way that you almost can't even, you can't even articulate. Right. It works or it doesn't work. 
How much were the actors privy to as far as uh, their own backstory? Oh, uh, we all talked a lot about um, a lot of them. And um, I, gave a, I gave a ton of um, books to one of the guys. I gave him all these books about uh, Greek history and mm. made him read up on Achilles and Ajax and all that. And then um, we sort of took those, uh, those character ideas of the Trojan War thing and then sort of played with, well, like, what would this be like for, like, when you were 15 in Ohio, you know? And, and mm-hmm. um, some of the other ones we talked a lot about, you know, like what their childhood was like and, you know, uh, this and that. And we sort of moved them together. And um, there, there was always a lot of... Uh, I, I was a big fan of them sort of having secret ideas about what their characters are like that even I didn't know. Right. And then I had secret ideas that even they didn't know. And then there was stuff we both knew that nobody else knew. And there was stuff that everybody else sort of knew that they didn't. I like to have that sort of holistic feel to a character where, you know, it's he's like a little different depending on what perspective you're looking at him or her. So in regards to showers, how do you feel about, you know, De Palma's use of showers? Because I, I've always felt like he he's pretty good at the, the shower fake out. You know, sometimes you'll be watching a shower scene of his and uh, it turns out you're watching, you know, a film that somebody else is watching <laughs> or you're, you're seeing a shower scene and then somebody starts bleeding in the middle of it. Yeah, like, that's, I, like, I mean, that scene in yeah. Carrie is one of the great examples of like fearless and totally human nudity in a shower. Yeah. You know, you couldn't get less erotic than that. No. And that is just character and movie defining. Yeah, some filmmakers, they just are kings of the shower. Like uh, <laughs> Hitchcock and De Palma, they get showers. And of course, De Palma always gets those Hitchcock comparisons, but they they handle showers pretty differently and they got their own thing that they bring to it. Yeah. I mean, um, the trick with De Palma, I think, is that, you know, he, at least in Carrie, um, he never cleaned Carrie up, which I think the remake kind of did. Mm. You know, the remake, she's like very conventionally pretty. Yeah. And Carrie. In, and same in, with the mom, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Julianne Moore, who's yeah. <laughs> like the most beautiful woman on the fucking planet. It's very strange. Yeah. In the in the 70s, when I think he, he wasn't afraid of having sort of um, ugliness in the in the film and in the story. Yeah. Ugliness isn't the right word, because obviously Sissy Spacek isn't ugly, but you know no. what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, sort of a... Homey or... Unconventionality. Indoors. Un- yeah. <laughs> she has a very indoors quality to her. She's um, She's got her own drummer, you know? Yeah. I've always liked his casting a lot. Well, wasn't that the one that they had the uh, split auditions with Star Wars? I didn't know that. Yeah, Carrie and Star Wars, they had split auditions and everybody was considered for both movies. Wow. So you, yeah, there's there's a world out there where Carrie is um, Carrie Fisher and and Travolta is Han Solo. And Jesus. Travolta is Han Solo. I don't know if I, I could ever no, I couldn't see anybody that. else in that role. That probably wasn't considered for more than like half a second. <laughs> there's, I feel like they're still waiting to write the definitive story of like De Palma and Lucas and Spielberg and Francis yeah. Ford Coppola and that whole group. You know, like all the little like Roger Corman's acolytes that just that Southern California in the 60s, 70s film school group. Well, De Palma Jack had, Hill. Yeah, Jack Hill. Well, De Palma had a uh, had, had like a head start on the rest of them. Yeah. And then he sort of, you know, fell behind because they just shot up. I mean, they were like the, the Wonder Boys. They yeah, just and, zoomed. And Spielberg was the joke because he went to UCLA mm-hmm. and all the rest of them went to USC. 
So it wasn't until like 93 when he did um, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year that Spielberg just shut everybody else down. Yeah. Well, Spielberg looked up to De Palma really yeah. heavily. Greg wrote a great De Palma piece for the site a year or two ago. It goes into the whole thing of like De Palma, man. He's just not, he's not spoke of in that same, uh, that same grouping. They're making a documentary about it, about oh, him. Yeah, yeah I, um, I spoke to the editor of it. Um, I, it's coming out, I think, next year. Nice. She says it's there's like it, it's very definitive. Good, from what I understand. Good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, because he's always been like the filmmaker favorite. It seems like there are a lot of filmmakers that really dig De Palma. I know, like Noah Baumbach, huge De Palma fan. They're out there, and it's just for some reason in the public consciousness, he's just nobody's going to say him in the same breath as Spielberg and. Uh, Coppola. Well, his string of bad movies was a long string and they were very bad. But they were interesting still. Like, I love Raising Cain. That's fun Mission as hell. Mission to Mars hell. is... Oh, Mission to Mars. Forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, him and Coppola, they just burnt out. I don't know what happened to De Palma. Coppola, I think it's very clear after Apocalypse Now, he couldn't do another movie. No. He couldn't do another shoot like that and he never risked it. Yeah. Which is sad, but um, but I think for his own personal well-being... <laughs> it's cool you yeah got, you're you good. got them you're good you made enough yeah you're fine just relax <laughs> all right we're gonna wrap it up here any uh any final words for our audience anything you've seen lately actually that you want to tell them to check out i saw this movie uh yesterday called the 317th platoon hmm. which is from 1965 it's a french vietnam war movie about the French in Vietnam, you know, in, in 50, oh, wow. uh, 54 or whatever, yeah. You don't see that much. No, it's great. It's right at the tail end of the war um, after Dien Bien Phu falls. And it's about this little platoon that's trapped behind enemy lines and they're trying to get back. Hmm. Uh, and it's just phenomenal. The director was, uh, he's the guy who later directed the documentary, um, The Anderson Platoon, which is... Um, sort of like the definitive Vietnam documentary. Mm-hmm. Even though personally I like In the Year of the Pig more, but you know, that's the one that people are like, this is this got it better than anything right. else. He was a soldier and he was um he was held captive in Vietnam in the fifties. And um I guess was when the when the French gave up, they sent him back to France. And then ten years later he shot this movie about it um in Cambodia, which in and of itself is very rare. It's tremendous. It's really um the cinematography is great. It's black and white, and it's this really like gritty cinematography, and the actors mm. are phenomenal. And it's it's about as I think as real feeling as a uh, as a war movie is liable to get. Yeah, uh, Vietnam movies. It's always America, America, America focus. It's interesting to get the the French perspective. Yeah, you don't see a lot of it. He made another one um, years later in the '90s called The Ambient Fu. That was sort of his next stab at telling the story of the French war in Vietnam. But that one is about an American who's there with the French. Right. So like, yeah, yeah, you, sneak you, almost, yeah you almost can't escape <laughs> it. This is a tremendous movie though. It's hard to find, but if you can get a hold of it, it's worth watching. What's the title for that again? 317th Platoon. Cool, man. Hopefully uh, some listeners will check it out. If you do, call in, leave us a voicemail and uh, tell us what you think. Yeah, yeah. And about De Palma, too. Yeah. Call in. What's your favorite De Palma? What's your least favorite De Palma? What's your favorite shower scene? <laughs> What's your least favorite? <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Mm-hmm.